Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we hear from Matt Battiali. Matt is a geologist and independent financial analyst. He's built his career and following by researching and writing about junior public investment opportunities. His research and letter writing career started with Stansbury Research, where he created the Stansbury Resource Report. It's one of the widest read natural resource investment publications in the world. He says that their goal was to generate ideas that could be pitched to hedge funds, but written for the retail investing audience. Now, whether you're a public company CEO, IR pro, or individual investor, I know you're going to take value from this interview. I like that Matt has learned from some of the best in the industry and closely followed both the successes and failures of junior public companies through his career. In our discussion, we talk about narrative development and why it's so important. We talk about the difficulties of clarifying an investment pitch and also about how digital marketing and social media are playing an increasingly important role in reaching new investors and engaging current shareholders. Something Matt emphasizes is that if he were the CEO of a junior company today, he'd commit to building a retail shareholder base. Why? Because if you're clear with them, they can be the stickiest investors. They want to be a part of a great success story, whereas an institutional investor can be merciless in selling their positions. That doesn't mean you can ignore institutional investors or neglect offline relationships by any means, but it does shine light on a potentially overlooked and undervalued segment of investors. There's some great food for thought in our discussion here, so enjoy the show. Matthew, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because in the pre-discussions we've had here, there's a lot of interesting things I think you bring to the world of the public markets, junior companies, the understanding of the world of publishing, the understanding of the world of, of investor relations and communicating a narrative and a story. And so I thought it was just, it'd be a great interview to get your perspective and that those years of experience on the show. So uh, well, thanks. What, what do you say we start off with you giving a bit of background for us? And then we'll be able to build from there. Sure. So I'm a, a geologist by education. So I, um, I did an undergrad at Penn State. Uh, I did a master's at Florida Atlantic. And I was recruited out of there to go and do a PhD at uh, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I spent five years kind of toiling away, realizing that I wasn't cut out to be an academic. And one of my very close friends is a guy named Dr. Steve Sugarud, who is a uh, He's a partner at Stansbury Research. He's a PhD in finance. And in 2004, they were just kind of building Stansbury up and they were looking for um, people to come and write. And they decided that for their natural resource letter, they wanted to hire a geologist and train him in finance as opposed to trying to find a financial guy they could teach geology to. 
Hmm. And I just happened to be the only geologist they knew. And so I got recruited out of that PhD program. I didn't finish. I got three chapters into my dissertation and we were expecting our first child. I'm like, ah, I got to get out of here. <laughs> but but the you know the work that I was doing at Stansbury was really very much in line with the kind of exploratory research I was doing in grad school, right? Uh, it was all numbers based. I was doing strontium isotope analysis. Uh, I've just put half of your listeners to sleep just saying that word. <laughs> okay, but yeah. it, basically, you know, you crunch numbers and you come to some conclusion. And so finance wasn't any different. I had to learn some principles about trading and I had had general economics, so I kind of understood what we were doing there. They gave me six months on the job without writing, and then I launched a newsletter after, yeah, it was pretty quickly after I started. It was great because, you know, there back then was early days, and our really our mantra was generate investment ideas that you could present to a hedge fund and then write them in such a way that people cared about them. And I present to a retail audience. Yeah, exactly. And I had great mentors. I mean, Porter Stansberry, regardless of what you think of him or think you know about him, is a fantastic writer and storyteller and thinker. And Sugar Root is a fantastic thinker, writer, storyteller. And there was a guy that I worked with back then, Brian Hunt, who was a fantastic storyteller, thinker, you know, and when you're around these people and you're sending drafts to them, you're going to take your lumps, but you learn how to write a compelling narrative and tell a good story. And that's really, that's the essence of what I had to learn. I mean, the, the math wasn't hard. It was the storytelling that was hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, that's such a huge part of engaging an investor audience. And I, I mean, I think for any of the listeners here, raising money is less about the economics of the deal and more about that emotional engagement, or at least initially to captivate somebody in to say, I'll take time to learn more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why don't we go down that path and talk about narrative development? Because I mean, that is such a big part of this. And what an interesting way to learn from these people who put together the stories there. So where would you start? What would you tell a company that (laughs) to, yeah, like where to start? I would tell them to send their slide deck that they have their investor deck that's on their website, send it to your mom. And if she can't understand it, you're doing it wrong because, and this is the single biggest flaw in 90% of the companies that I look at, I'm reviewing their stuff is that there's no clarity. There's no narrative. The slides are terrible because most of these guys are in the weeds in their own company. The founders are always deep in it, right? Oh, you yeah. got to have some little nuance, some little thing. And you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you have to step back, have a clarity and a brevity of narrative so that anybody, so that I can just click on your web presentation. Each slide tells me a story. Each slide advances the story one more step. But each slide, one concept per slide, you know, and build it so that I understand what your investment, why I want to own your stock. So few companies do that well. I want to reflect on a couple of past guests. One of them is Taylor Toen from BTV. Her saying is brevity is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that, and I agree, there's, you know, sometimes you get in these nuanced terms and jargon that works its way into adding more text to a slide deck. And I don't believe it's helpful. So I hear what you're saying there. Another one is a gentleman named Kyle Dunn, who is a founder of Mailer Capital. And he said, when you're out 
raising money or engaging investors, or you're not competing for their money, you're competing for their time. Meaning yeah. that that pitch deck really is a piece of rhetoric that is there to convince them to say, you know what, I'll take a little bit more time here. It's not there to give them the full due diligence package, right? Right. So what I'm hearing there is, I mean, it's solidifying what a lot of others have said and what I believe as well. So what else is there? Your mother can't understand it. How do you go about creating that narrative that is simple enough for everybody to understand? Yeah, it, it takes work. It takes iterations. You have to decide, really, it's a value proposition. What are you bringing to the world that is valuable to me that I want to own your stock? And, you know, one of the things that I find is that people are very certain about what they do, but they're very uncertain about where they're going. And when I see that, I get really concerned. You know, in mining, it's relatively straightforward because you have, you know, you're looking for a deposit and you're, if you find that deposit, then that's where we're going. And that's where the value creation is. But if you're at, you know, I, I was just looking at this ag tech firm and I won't tell you the name of it, but, you know, they're really small and they have, in my head, the narrative is pretty clear. I see the catalyst, right? They have developed three different seed lines that have these really valuable attributes in the seeds that, you know, they can, you can grow them in dry places, so you don't need as much water. They have health benefits. The plants have actually a lot of health benefits to their seeds once you create them. And this is like wheat and soy. And they just signed distribution deals in South America and China, right? It's a pretty straightforward premise. They've been selling in North America. They're going to start selling these things in South America and China. The sales are going to ramp up. Revenue is going to ramp up. The value of the stock should go up, right? It took me hours and hours <laughs> of waiting through their presentations and their news releases and their freaking quarterly reports to put that information together. I shouldn't have to do that because 99.9% yeah. .9 of investors won't do that, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do it because I know that that's how I find value. As an investor, I'm gonna, I want to find a company that has really great stuff and can't sell a dollar fifty cents, right? But uh, I just want to touch on a point. There is one, you know, retail investors almost guaranteed won't bother doing that, mm -hmm. and probably not the same thing for institutions. They just have too much going. Yeah. They're looking. They're overseeing too many stocks. I remember talking with a, a gentleman, and I looked at the. The number of names he's following and his funds are actually invested in. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it has got to be absolutely impossible for you to know everything going on here. So how could you even commit any time to learning yeah. new stories? To me, it just it affirms what you're saying there. Yeah. And it really, honestly, that's the niche that I've built my business in. In those newsletters that I wrote for Stansbury from 2005 to 2017, I wrote for another Agora division from 2017 to middle of 2020, you know, what I did was dig through these companies and find those opportunities. But as a company, that company will struggle to raise money because yeah. there's no clarity there whatsoever. And so from a, an investor point of view, you do need someone who's willing to get in the weeds and really dig through this stuff and find out whether this company is worthwhile or not. Hmm. You know, and there's a lot of churn because there are a lot of companies that aren't, you know, and then on the other hand, you know, you have these companies that they need to go out and raise money. They can't tell a good story and then they don't do a good deal. 
right? Whether the price is too low or they have to issue warrants because people aren't really sure. So they want a little reassurance, a little more. And that's bad for the existing shareholders. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, no, clarity of communication is, I mean, if I were going to talk to a new CEO, the single most important thing that I would tell them is, yeah, don't get in the weeds with your story, but have a very clear statement of purpose and a very clear explanation of your value proposition. Mm, you know, right. you're a 10 cent stock today, you're going to be a dollar. Here's how we get there. Yeah. Right. Here's the catalysts for growth. Here's the milestones we Big aim stock. to be hitting and things. Yeah. Can we talk about the publishing industry? I mean, that's where sure. you've built your career and your business and how it supports the companies in, in reaching both retail and institutions. Yeah. And then also, I mean, the, I don't know if we can get into specific numbers, but the economics behind it, because finding good researchers or good paid publishers, it's not cheap. So there's a lot there. What can you unpack for us? Yeah, it's really important to understand, though, from both the retail investor side and from the company's side, not all newsletters are built the same way. So the Agora companies, which is why, you know, Stansbury's a part of Agora. They're the companies that I'm used to. We had a very strict thou shalt not own stock in anything you write about. Hmm. So we were directed to be independent. Our coverage had to be completely independent. I had to pay my own way for travel. So when I went to see a project, I paid for my airfare, I paid for my food, I paid for my lodging because I wanted to be objective about the company so that if I needed to sell them, I could sell them and you know, no hard feelings. That's not typical in the newsletter space. Most of the newsletters are compensated in some way. So mm. whether they're taking you know, a position in the stock before they write them up, or they're getting paid by the company or the company will take them on a junket, kind of a you know fully paid travel kind of a deal. And so from a retail investor point of view, you need to understand what motivates the newsletters, right? So if they have a position and they agreed that they're not gonna sell and they tell you that, that's good, right? One of the problems with the Agora newsletters is that they're often used as liquidity events. Right. So, okay. you know, you, you need to get off a big chunk of stock. You call up some newsletter writer and give them a hot tip and get them really worked up about a stock. They write something inflammatory <laughs> about the stock. And you have, uh, you know, all these retail investors who follow this newsletter person and it gives you the perfect liquidity event. The ability to, yeah, for somebody who's... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you have to be careful. Yeah, of course. What about for the company specifically? How have you seen, yeah. I mean, this in the world of investor marketing, mm -hmm. publishers and newsletter writers, they can play a very important part of like a, a holistic investor marketing program. Right. And that How was you seen it done well. So I'm going to toot my own horn. <laughs> Go for it, man. <laughs> the, uh, back in way back in 2006. I'd been writing for about a year. Stansbury put together a conference in Long Beach. And back then, I didn't know the darker side of newsletters. We All I was trying to do was find great ideas and get them for my readers. Because the only way that we were compensated was by subscribers kind of uh, renewing, right? Because it costs you, as, if it's a $100 newsletter, it costs you $99 to bring on a reader that first year. But if they were really happy and they signed up for it again, 
you know, it was a very low cost acquisition, right? So you, you turn them over and then instead of $1 in profit, you made $80 or whatever it was, yeah, right? Yeah. So we were, my goal, my focus was just to make these people happy. And we came up with this idea of getting together what we thought were just the best junior mining stocks. We got them in Long Beach. We brought in a bunch of our clients and we had them get up and give their 15 minutes. Each company did 15 minutes. And I would tell you from my readers feedback, they loved that because it was a very small forum. They were handpicked. I think almost all of them sent their CEOs. So you had a chance to be in the room with the CEO over lunch. You could sit with these CEOs. You got the, and from the company's point of view, they got shareholders that stayed with them 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of these guys. And so, and this was, so 2006, 2007, we're talking companies like Seabridge Gold, Kamenak, which isn't around anymore. The Eurasian Minerals, Lara Exploration, really small. Who's behind Eurasian Minerals? Dave Cole. Dave Cole. Okay. And CEO. It's not Eurasian Minerals anymore. Now is it Euromin? No, it's uh, a royalty now. It's okay. EMX Royalties, I think is what it's called now. Oh, interesting. I actually, I went to a lot of their projects. They had some really, really, they were big idea generators. And I really enjoyed, I was in Turkey, I was in Haiti. I've been to Arizona looking at their projects. That's good. You know, they've always been a good group. Wow. And my readers were in and out of them for years. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And from the side of investor marketing, what are your perspectives on or advice to to those public companies and their management teams when it comes to balancing the focus between investor yeah, institutional investor interest and retail investor interest? And what's the relationship between the two that you see? Sure. And this is my opinion. And, and <laughs> okay. I know I have some institutional friends that are, if they see this, they're going to give me hell for saying it. But the fact is that a lot of the institutional stuff is mercenary, Right. They're looking for their fees, right? Very few of them are long-term holders because their master is, you know, the money that they're managing, right? It's not mm-hmm. the companies. So you have to understand as a company what you're getting into. Whose hands are you putting those warrants and those shares? And what is the likely outcome? Are they going to be good shareholders? Are they in it for the long haul or not? You know, and then retail investors, it depends. If I were a junior CEO, right, one of the things that I would do is build a retail shareholder base because if you're clear with them about your intentions and if you're clear with them about the value propositions each step of the way, retail investors tend to be lifers. Yeah, the the stickiest. I've heard that before and I agree with you. They are because they want to see you build something and they all want to see you succeed. Yeah. And it's very, you have to be really bad (laughs) to burn that bridge where, you know, institutional investors, you know, not so much. You never have a retail investor who is sneakily dumping shares and and keeping your share price down ahead of your financing. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you look at from a, from an institution side, like mercenaries is, I think is a really good word. They have no problem hitting the sell button. If no, they got to get off the position, or they right. got to rebalance. Absolutely. And their right. bonus is tied directly to it. Exactly. And with, I would never say zero emotion, but with very little emotion, 
they'll hit that sell button. Whereas the retail, like they'll stick in there to a great story that they're convinced by that they've told to everybody they know. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I really think that there's a, it is very important to recognize the differences between the two there. Yeah, it is. And that's, you know, that's where a good relationship with a good newsletter writer can really be beneficial, you know, and build that audience of of potential retail to bring into the story. And I mean, one of the things about a a good investor, a good long-term investor is that they'll forgive you if you make a mistake and you explain it to them. Right. You know what I mean? Or if the stock is getting beaten up because you did a, a bad financing and now there's lots of big warrant overhang that's coming due. And so it's keeping a lid on the share price or it's eroding because somebody's selling into your share price. If you can be clear on what's going on, the newsletters, you know, the retail audience will forgive you. If you go dark for six months and nobody gets an update and they don't really know what's going on, you know, you can lose them in droves that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to get your take on, I mean, the world of the junior markets, especially within Canada, it's a very unique public venture capital system. Frankly, I think, you know, I'm proud of it. It's something that is, is unique to the world. Other countries have tried it mm-hmm. and it can attract a lot of international interest and international listings. That said, if used wrong or if done wrong <laughs> with the wrong partners, it can go sideways right quick. What's your take when it comes to the brokerage industry, the investment bankers and the financing groups there? Any advice, any perspectives? What's your take? You're swimming with sharks. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. You have to be very careful, especially retail investors. I've had, you know, I learned a long time ago that I don't know everything there is because I'm not in the trenches every day. But man, there are a lot of operators in the industry who, you know, who know how they know what they're doing. But yeah, no, it is a very unique system and it's very different from, I would, you know, the, there's an Australian junior system, which right. is different. Yeah. But I always warn my retail folks that when you're in the, you know, the Canadian markets, you have to be very careful and you have to understand what you're doing, have goals, you know. So if your goal is, I want to be a long-term investor and help these guys build this mine, that's good. But throwing money at, lots of names and ideas. It's a great way to lose a lot of money. You know, <laughs> joke, you want to make a million bucks, start with 2 million bucks. Uh, <laughs> but the, you know, cannabis is a great example because you had this cannabis boom and everybody was really excited. And so long before it was even legal in Canada, right, to buy it, we had that build up to the legalization yeah, uh, it was market, market, market as hard as you could build that share price up, 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 build the market cap up, up, up. And as soon as it, <laughs> as soon as it legalized, they all it was buy the rumor, sell the news. Yeah. And, and retail, you know, the newsletters had built it up to the point where it was just it was a crazy. There was an story. incredible froth there, wasn't there? Yeah. Oh, and, you know, we say, oh, it's froth, right? That was retail investor money. Well, it wasn't all, but there, a lot of money went to money heaven, you know? Right. I saw the same thing happen with the rare earth boom and bust. When was that? 2012, 13, 14, somewhere yeah. in there. You know, we chatted about that in, mm-hmm. in our previous call before this. And yeah. I want to reflect, or I would like you to reflect on some of the comments that we had there, but almost in the in sense for, for the management teams out there, because in that rare earth boom, 
there was a lot of people who came in, told a lot of stories to the market mm-hmm. and some won and some didn't, and some have you know continued to suffer. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to managing the, this unique public market ecosystem, what are the lessons that you saw that you would take away from that, that you would share with management teams? Yeah, I mean, the management, it was a, I think there were a lot of faults there, right? The first being that it was a really compelling story. And, and this is for like, rare earths, if we were to frame it. Yeah, up, right? sure. Yeah. So the narrative went like this. We need rare earth magnets. Every new electronic device has to have these special magnets. And they're made out of these weird little metals called, oh man, I'm not going to be able to think of the actual names of them because we got to the point where we were calling them storium, scamium, and fraudium. <laughs> uh, but it, there are these oddball metals. And so what happened was the newsletters were at fault because certain newsletter writers realized that when you said China owns all this stuff and the United States is at risk, you could sell a lot of newsletters. And they did. But then to fulfill that, you've got to find stocks to buy. Mm. So then they turned to these stocks. And the problem is there just aren't that many real deposits of this. They're byproduct metals. They're not. And when you look at where they are, there really weren't good ways to buy them. You know, what ended up happening was this company called Mollycorp. There was an old, I think it's the only rare earth mine in the United States or in North America. I forget which, but, and it was a freaking super fun site. So they brought it out of retirement and they started, you know, we're going to bring the mine back into production. We're putting out all this stuff. The other problem with these rare earths is, yes, they're critical. We absolutely need them. The market for them is teeny, teeny, tiny. Mm. It's basically a rounding error on like the copper market. Mm. Like, you know, it's so, so small. It's so small that the hype and the story got Molly Corp's market cap larger than the sales of these metals around the world. And it's like, well, this has to bust. It just right. has to, right? Yeah. So there were lots of people at fault. But when you have that sort of a hot, crazy market, you get folks that are like, you know, if I just launched this company and called it a rare earth company, I could drive a really sharp car. I could eat out every night in downtown Vancouver. I could have my office on the 30th floor overlooking Stanley Park. That has an appeal. And so they did, right? And there was that, you know, that crowd was in cannabis. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's just. So what, I guess the rare earth is an instance where markets and hype and newsletters and all of the narrative got out of hand. And perhaps there were some good companies in there that those management teams have, have, you know, they hopefully live to see another day after that all came off and build real companies. If we were to just generalize it and say for any company that's out there building a narrative and managing a narrative with the audience mm-hmm. and to use the rare earth thing, how do you start to recover from that? How do you work within that? And I mean, it could apply to cannabis companies because that was very similar as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult, especially when when the story kind of fades, you know, you have two choices. Part of this, this also happened with uranium. It wasn't quite as hyped because uranium was a real thing until Fukushima happened, right? Mm. So for years and years, there were these uranium juniors. They were finding lots of uranium. But the problem was 
we had plenty of uranium. And then when Fukushima hit and Germany shut all of its nuclear reactors down and Japan shut all their nuclear reactors down, the demand died. And so now you can have the best and the brightest junior uranium company, but the price of your commodity is right. It's dead. So now what do you do? I knew some guys that hung in there for a really long time, but eventually you had two choices. You know, you could turn and pivot to a different commodity or you can, you know, fold the company and leave. I think with cannabis, those cannabis stocks that ripped and then crashed, some of those companies will make it. Some of them have right. a legitimate business plan and they just have to navigate what they're doing. All the, you know, all the steps in the road. Basically, you know, you're an agricultural company now. It's basically yeah. made us. Huh. And just, you have to work it out. But it's not the hype. And so it's it's going to be harder to raise money. You're going to have to show, you know. You've got a you real business. Have, yeah, that you do have a real business, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that, well, yeah, I agree with you now. It's almost, you know, you can't ride the hype to raise the dollars anymore. I want to switch gears and get your perspectives on the world of, of investor engagement, especially now, because like you could say, and I've argued that the whole world of cannabis and the industry there put digital marketing front and center for how mm -hmm. to reach out and build a bigger investor audience. And that digital marketing is a very wide, you know, it's a wide term or wide industry, if you will. What have you seen works and what have you seen doesn't work? And what are your perspectives on how to engage investors using what is perhaps even new to the world of investor marketing. Yeah, it's, um, you know, to give you a little background, right? Newsletters that don't take money from companies and rely on subscribers have to advertise in any way possible. When I started in 2005, we were still doing direct mail. So we were mm -hmm. literally mailing thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces out to build yeah. our list. And then, you know, these days, I think there are lots of ways you as a CEO or a business owner have to, you have to have that clear value proposition. You have to have that short elevator pitch and you have to get it out there in front of people's eyeballs. And so I've been very interested. Twitter is a relatively new thing for me. I've only been on it for a couple of years now, but I think it's been, there are some really great communities there. Certainly the, the MinTwit, the mining Twitter group. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that's a great way to kind of grassroots your way when you're looking for that audience. I've been telling the companies that I work with, you've got to be on Twitter and you have to be using your Twitter account. So you're a proponent so of social media then for I, public companies. I am. Less Facebook, more Twitter. Yep. I also, I'm a big fan of the virtual conferences. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that they're, so I was watching one of the companies, they just did five Zoom calls in the month of January. And they're basically, you're basically walking through your slide deck, but they have them set up. So it's the equivalent of a road show, right? Except where a road show is only for you know, the specific audience, these are open to retail too. And so if you can, again, clarity of thought and a good elevator pitch, put that out through whatever, you know, whether it's a digital marketing company that sends the emails out because they have an email list, however you can get people's eyes on that Zoom, now you're golden. Now it's yep. all about your pitch. 
because the goal is getting eyeballs on your story. Yeah. And it's far, far better. You know, you get a lot more potential eyes on the internet than you do by taking it to, you know, the county court offices. And yeah. Like a traditional roadshow, you step yeah. in. And I remember it always blew my mind in the sense that you could go do these pitches at, at, you know, across the boardrooms of all the brokerage firms and you just go in there, you buy them the shittiest lunch possible. So you don't spend <laughs> a lot of money. You tell them a story. They barely listen because they just wanted the pizza. And then they walk out yeah. and they go, I don't even know what he was talking about. Yeah. I mean that it's like, I've been on both sides of that. Well, not on the brokerage side, but on definitely the pitching side and recognizing that. And so I always believed buy them a really good lunch. And then <laughs> my wife who works in the brokerage industry, she was there for 10 years with Macquarie and RGMP. Yeah. She would time and time again, say she would walk out and talk to the other brokers and they would say things like, yeah, I just, I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Like what was the point? So bringing it back though, and I don't want to get too down my own path of where my interests lie, but I definitely believe that digital investor marketing is similar, if not almost exactly the same as when it comes to marketing a consumer product in the sense that you need to get lots of eyes on what you have, your value proposition. You need to have an emotional hook. You need to bring somebody in. And then once they buy, and whether they buy in the form of joining that seminar or joining that Zoom call or joining your shareholder list by actually buying your stock, you got to remember that they could have buyer's remorse. So how do you keep them ingratiated in the story? How do you continually to be present or in front of them so that if you go radio silent, you're going to be the first one they're going to sell. Whereas if you continually update them, say, this is working, this didn't, here's how we fixed it. And I know it's a tremendous amount of work, but that's where you start to build that conviction. And I'm going to quote another guest we had. She's now a VC, but used to be with Goldman and Vanguard. And her quote to me was the best of the best companies over communicate. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And yeah. so, and, and now I believe really the best way to do that, especially with this COVID pandemic is through digital and, and finding the means there and a real balance. Right. So, and, but I do want to point out your point earlier that companies who overpromote should also be suspect. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to communication, my experience inside of companies is that they agonize over press releases. And it gets so it goes through so many iterations. There's so many fingers in the pot and it's such a process. Yeah. That's where social media comes in. That's where social media comes in, in my mind, as a really powerful tool. Right. Because especially with Twitter, you're forced to be brief. Right. And you're forced to be engaging and you're communicating. So instead of having some big, long, formal process, you know, yeah, obviously with public companies, they have to make sure that they're on side with all their legal requirements. But I mean, you know, just engaging other companies, engaging newsletter writers, making a call, like yesterday was a great example, just putting out something about Martin Luther King and then, you know, something pithy. You've actually engaged your readers that are on Twitter. Yeah. You give them something, you know, you're front of mind again. You know? Yeah. Somebody, um, I don't know if he wants me to use his name or not yet, but he's a phenomenal IR professional and digital marketer. 
and what he refers to as these micro-conversions, meaning you know, somebody sees that Martin Luther King piece, which, you know, is something recognizing an important event, but it's got the name attached to it. Mm-hmm. That's enough to just keep you top of mind. And it's just that micro step towards them, one, their conviction in the story or two, them, them buying and holding kind of things. So it really is an interesting world now, man, when it comes to this stuff, because it is. I think it came on for IR pros really quick. Yeah. But things changed fast. I'm just looking at time, Matt. This hour went quick. What final thoughts would you have for those public market audiences out there or CEOs and management teams who'd be listening coming from your perspective? Because you have a very intimate view of them. So I'm sure that there's been a lot of things you learned. What are some final thoughts? Uh, I think for companies, and I've said this a couple of times, your pitch deck has to be clear. Your expression of value has to be clear. And your roadmap of how we get from where we are now to where we want to be and how that translates to value for your shareholder has to be crystal clear because that is the value proposition. That's what gets me. Rick Roll always says, that's what triggers the hand to wallet reflex. Yeah. Right. You need to buy those shares. You've got to convince me that I have to own your shares right now. And for the retail audience, blindly following newsletter writers is not a great path to success, you know, Mm. making sure that you understand where they're coming from and what their motivations are is important. And understanding what their relationships are so that you don't become a liquidity event for a company is also, it's also important. You know, one of the things that newsletter writers do is that they create urgency and there's not always urgency around, you know, you don't have to buy the stock right now. You know, you can step back and wait for that tidal wave of buying to go through. One of the things that I do know about newsletter buyers is that they're the worst investors. And I mean <laughs> that with love. So all my people who are listening, but if you're not using a limit order, you're the one I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Just yeah. Market so, orders are just taking up as much somebody, as you, know, you know, it's a 10 cent stock and it doesn't trade more than a hundred thousand shares a day. And they're, take a bazooka to this thing, trying to get their shares ahead of everybody else. You know, it didn't uh, matter how many times you told them not to do that. They still do it. So, wow. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Well, where can listeners follow your work and get in touch with you? Yeah. Right now, the best place is I have a blog. It's www.mattbattialley.net. It's M-A-T-T-B-A-D-I-A-L-I.net. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. And otherwise, thanks so much for making the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Anytime, in fact. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.